Thank you. Wouldn't it be cool if we just always had music when you go into <laughs> the room? I kind of want like theme music. Fast forward promises to fireside chat, and we have these cool lights behind us that kind of looks like a little bit of a fire. Um, we're going to open up for some Q&A. There's been a lot of like, kind of talking on the stage, so we want to make sure that there's some time for Q&A here as well. So good morning. My name is Carolyn. I'm delighted to be here with you all today. Over the past few years, we've seen an eruption of digital movements, from Time's Up and March for Our Lives, emoji diversification to uh, getting clothes to teens that need them, homeless teens that need them. There has been a lot going on in the world that's been unlocked through digital movements. I think this is a really exciting topic for today because the tech nonprofits in this room, like the last one we heard about, the scale of what they're doing is so powerful, and we all want to be part of it. With the current national situation, the current extraordinary time we're living in, we also are fueling a lot of emotions. So a lot of us are rather discontent about the current world, I would say, uh, especially young people. And the emotion of anger or hope or inspiration or rage or whatever it might be is also fueling and sparking conversations and actions. And when we feel that way, we are looking to amazing platforms like Do Something and GoFundMe to make this change happen. So I'm really excited to have a conversation today with Ariane Raquel uh, to talk about the power of their platform and to share some learnings they have with all the dreamers and doers in this room uh, to unlock purpose. And so join me in just thanking them for being here with, <laughs> with us and also just importantly the impact that they have. I think just for the first question, I'd love just to hear from each of you all about the evolution of your platform and the role that facts and feelings have played into the strategy you've developed for where you all are. So Raquel, you want to sure. go? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me here. Um, it's been so inspiring so far. Um, so the story of GoFundMe is very interesting. Um, it was actually started by two young men um, down in San Diego. And the original concept was um, Coin Piggy. The original idea was effectively to help people save money for different things that they want wanted to do, um, but that idea didn't work because as it turned out, every time someone put money in their coin piggy, they were hit with a transaction fee. Um, and so it was effectively like a negative interest rate savings piggy bank. So they kind of pivoted from there, I think, which is one of the key learnings is these guys kept pivoting and pivoting until they found a product market fit. And what was happening at the time was social media was starting to take off. And so they kind of thought to themselves, instead of people, you know, squirreling away money for themselves, would people be willing to fund someone else's project or idea? Um, and if you recall, Kickstarter was kind of happening at the same time. And they were students of what they call um, viral product loops. So their idea was, you know, and they pivoted to what they call create a fund, this idea that if they launched in a social format and people would share their campaigns because as a virtue of like wanting to, say, to raise money for something, you want to share that, it would help generate awareness for the platform as those campaigns were being funded. So in May of 2010, they rebranded to what is now known as GoFundMe today, and the platform um, organically grew from there. And I think what we saw in the very early days is that product market fit really gravitated towards what we call medical emergency causes, right? 
So much so that anytime something big happens, whether it's in a local community or on a national platform, you would see GoFundMe's getting started within minutes. And that is effectively when I joined um, GoFundMe two years ago, what I saw with my own eyes. Um, just a few short months after I joined, um, Hurricane Harvey hit the national news. And same thing, within minutes, you know, people were starting these GoFundMe's, right? And it was really astonishing to see both the scale and the speed with which funds were being raised. And within the first 30 days, um, we raised and then distributed over $28 million to communities in need, right? So that was just very eye-opening experience for me to see the magnitude of impact at a macro but also a micro level because you could see where that money was flying to directly. Um, so that was one of the biggest uh, first experiences for me personally. But from there, you know, we've started to see the platform evolve because originally it was mostly people reacting to things, and now we're seeing people more proactively um, raising money. So to your point about whether it's social activism or people see a problem in their community, they're taking action on those things. Um, so that's part of like the evolution we've seen. As it relates to facts versus emotion, you know, obviously facts play a big role in terms of how our operations operate every single day. We've invested a lot in technology and machine learning algorithms that are on par with financial services to make sure that the validity of all the campaigns that are running our platform ensure a very safe environment for people to raise and donate to. Um, but in addition to that, we've also put in place a very large trust and safety team. And these folks are working 24-7 to ensure, again, that all those campaigns are safe in our platform. But the emotional piece is so important, right? So this is one of the things I talk about a lot. Like you can't get so caught up in the technology that you forget to step, take a step back and understand that at the end of the day, this is about helping people. And so I always tell organizers, you know, lead with the heart and then close with the mind. So lead with the heart is like, at the end of the day, you have to appeal to people on an emotional level. So really trying to figure out, like, how do you make your cause relevant to people? What is the insight that humanizes the, the need that you're trying to raise money for? Then, of course, you have to, like, in, include all the facts so that people, in sh like, can understand where that money is going to at the end of the day. Fantastic. I love yeah. the lead with your heart and close your mind. I think that's, a, that's very tweetable. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Aria, do something. Sure. So, do something is actually 25 years young. So, we were founded in 1993. Like <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and, you know, in 93, you know, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, and neither had Brewster. So, uh, we didn't have that as our platform to make change, but the idea was the same that the power of young people was enormous, and we should both unlock their potential to make change, but also, can we change them? Can we create the leaders of tomorrow? Can we make this you know, the most socially active, socially conscious generation? And so Do Something pivoted in um, 2003 when our previous CEO, Nancy Loveland, came on board to be about the power of digital to unlock offline action. And I think that's a critical component for us because we heavily use the power of digital and technology and machine learning and SMS and everything at our fingertips, but so much of our action actually happens offline, and we think that's a critical component. Um, even when you think of young people, you think they're always wired and everything they're doing is texting or tweeting or snapping, whatever, but still, you know, three quarters of word of mouth happens offline. And so when we think of how we can spread our movements and what we're doing, we think of giving our young people ways to talk about what we're doing online, but also off. So how can they talk about it in school, in college, at their church, with their parents, um, in a real life setting? And just to echo, I mean, 
I am like the stats girl, and I just want to lead with a statistic every time. And then I, every time I have to go back and read and be like, oh, no one else cares. Like, all <laughs> they care about is the story of one person. And so, um, you know, when we, when we launched one of our most iconic campaigns that was about a third of all homeless people in the United States are under the age of 18, you know, that moved me. Oh my God, if, like walking around San Francisco, you assume that homeless people are older men, but no, you know, a third are children. And that was effective, but it was even more effective when we drilled down and said, in your community in Paducah, Kentucky, there's 400 homeless people, and one of them is Jeannie, and she's 16, and she's an LGBT runaway, and do this campaign for her. And so I, I think we've all learned that lesson, but I need to learn it again every day. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the fire analogy for a second. So <laughs> emotions run white hot. Yeah. So the minute we go on to one of your platforms and see something you want to do, we want to do it, or we're driven to do it. How do you sustain that, though? How do you, how do you sustain action uh, for building digital movements? How do you all think about that? We think about that all the time because a lot of people say, you know, anger, yes, everyone's doing this because they're angry, that's a great emotion, and I completely disagree. Anger only gets you to do something once and it's totally unsustainable. And, and what you need, and, and we, again, we want young people to, make act, to take action right now to make change at this moment, but we're in it for the long term. Like we're behavior change, and if you, you can't behavior one time doesn't behavior change make, and so, the other word that you use, which I think is so critical, is hope. If you don't have hope that the system's gonna change, you're not gonna vote. If you don't have hope that we can clothe the homeless, why bother even getting involved? And so we think about how to use anger as the spark, but then if we don't have hope, then it's not gonna happen. I mean, every time I see a tweet that says, Parkland happened a year ago and nothing has changed, mm. I just think that alone sets the movement back five years. Mm. Because one, it takes away people's hope, and two, it's just not true. We've had 67 you know, gun uh, violence prevention laws passed in this country, and the best thing we can do to sustain a, mo a movement is actually to highlight the wins, because that will give people hope to continuing to take part. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, we often see that it is um, an emotion that sparks that first action. Um, but it requires um, you know, sustained engagement to keep that movement going and turning a moment into a movement. Um, so from a, from a platform standpoint, we provide our community with a lot of tools to help enable that. Um, but one of my favorite examples of this was a, a, a dad in Seattle, his name is Jeff Liu, and um, he read an article in the Seattle Times about this lunch shaming thing that was happening in his school district, which is this idea that if a kid goes through the lunch line and he doesn't have enough money to pay, um, they'll single him out. Sometimes they would write like the debt on his arm, all kinds of ways of basically shaming these kids. And of course he was like morally outraged by that. So he thought to himself, what can I do? So he started to go find me with the goal of raising money to eradicate lunch debt in his particular school district. Um, and I think it was like $20,000. You know, he quickly reached and exceeded that goal. And he said, well, I was successful doing that. You know, now I'm going to go statewide. You know, he, he started with a couple st school districts, but eventually went statewide. But then the most miraculous thing happened because we started to, you know, amplify and elevate that story to Aria's point about showing the success. And then that moment turned into a movement and it started jumping states. So jumped to Texas, North Carolina, Michigan. And before we knew it, there were people all over the country that were doing exactly the same thing. 
all started with this one spark of a man in Seattle. And within a few short months, it raised over half a million dollars. And it was the exact same thing, people figuring out that, like, I can make a difference, you know? Um, so I just think that's so powerful and inspiring. I love it. We're going to go from the spark to the flame to the white hot. <laughs> we're going to stay on that. Uh, so, so the, the accidental uh, person who builds a movement, uh, in this audience we have dreamers, we have doers, we have tech nonprofits. What advice do you, all, you have on how to intentionally design and build a digital movement, you know, both online and offline? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I, would, uh, I would think about, we're talking about sparks, um, I would think about what are all of those things that are going to maintain the movement. If you have the initial spark, that's incredible, but you're going to need momentum along the way, and it sort of seems uh, counterproductive, but you plan so much leading up to a launch, and then after the launch, you're like, we're good. And I think that is the exact opposite of what needs to happen, and so um, at, at do something we try, and we don't always succeed, but we try to have pre-mortems before we launch any movement or uh, what we're doing, and the pre-mortem is like, okay, what could go wrong and what will we do when it eventually does go wrong? And so you can think ahead of time sort of how is that's happening. Um, and the number one piece of advice I would give is figure out how to build community. I mean, GoFundMe has done an incredible job building a community and, and you think of the sort of like fundamental, why does a human do anything, whether it's digital or not? It's people like me do things like this. Like this happens all the time. Someone says something online and you like look at your friends and you're like, what are we going to do about this? How do we feel about this? Do we hate this or do we like this? You look at the people who are like you, who are your tribe, who are your people. And so as much as possible, how do you build that inclusive community so that people can feel like they're on the inside um, and, th and then thank them for it, which, which I have to admit is one of the reasons why, especially in this culture of um, who's the most woke, I think the people who are going to win are the people who say, you know, there is room for the people who are just waking because I'm going to bring them into my community and the people who lose are going to be the people who are exclusive um, and sort of shut those doors down on community. Yeah, I love that. I think I personally believe that gratitude is a very renewable resource. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can acknowledge and thank people for the, for the actions that we're wanting to reward. I know we're, we're all moms. Yeah. We talk about that um, in our families, but also kind of in movement building uh, in the world for sure. Can what you talk to my son? Because yeah. that would be great. <laughs> we'll trade. I... Yeah, I, that is such a fantastic point. Um, I often tell people the power of thank you is so profound. Um, so I guess two thoughts just to build on that is if your goal is to build a movement, it is absolutely about engaging and re-engaging. But I think taking a step back and figure out what is the story arc that you're trying to build as part of this movement and not just telling the same story every time that you're re-engaging your community, but figuring out how to reframe the problem and keep people engaged and keeping the story interesting. So just figuring out what that story arc is. But yes, the power of thank you is so profound. Um, I see people who are good at doing that. like basically those donors then re-engage, right? Um, they want to feel acknowledged and there are different ways of doing that. So getting creative about how to do that, I think is really important. Fantastic. So people making change, uh, there is this election coming up, I think in 2020. I think, yeah, yeah, there's an election coming up. Um, 
Uh, there's some get out the vote work that uh, Do Something's doing, uh, has done in the past and is planning on doing. Can you talk about the work you all are doing in that? Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's, it's really critical to think about the arc actually of young people because at Do Something we serve young people 13 to 25 and we cover every issue. So whether you care about homelessness or poverty or Black Lives Matter or mental health or cancer. And we had always like every four years like held out the sign that's like get out the vote, but not really. We had never done anything in a concerted effort. And one of the reasons was because we had gone to our membership and we asked them what is more impactful, volunteerism or advocacy, voting, and political change. And overwhelmingly, it was always volunteerism is the most impactful thing. Whenever we tried to do any advocacy work, even like music education, like the most tame, non-controversial thing, they were uninterested. Um, and in 2016, not a surprise, all that changed. For the first year, in 15 years, young people finally said that political advocacy and voting could be as impactful um, as volunteerism. And I'm a firm believer that you need both People who sort of say like volunteerism, like that's just a Band-Aid. Well, one, people are hurting right now, so like Band-Aids are needed. Um, and two, like no one ever accused the political system of building empathy, and I think volunteerism builds that empathy that is so critical. Um, and so we set out and we said, okay, you know, we have these young people who are 13 to 25, a lot of them who are 18 to 25, let's see the 18 midterm, what we can do. Um, and we set a goal to register 100,000 first-time voters and then try to get our full membership to the polls. Um, and to the hope point, uh, young people were about to lose hope because they felt like, why would I vote? Politicians don't listen to me. 90% of young people believe in climate change. Politicians don't. 90% of young people think that there should be a path for dreamers. Politicians aren't listening. Um, and so it was really incredible to see in the 2018 election that do something along with amazing other partners, Rock the Vote and Turbo Vote and the ACLU and, and lots of folks. Um, it was the highest youth voter, voter turnout in 25 years. And so what we were thinking about is how do we message that to our young people? You did something and you changed something and there is now hope. And so uh, our young people told us that that's important. And so we're going to double down in 2020. How can we get our 5 million young people to the polls on uh, November 3rd? Let's help her do that. I'm going to open it for questions in the audience after one more question. So get your questions going. Uh, Eventbrite, our mission is really to bring the world together through live experience. So in real life, uh, which I think is a pretty powerful thing. Uh, but I'm curious how you all think about the marriage of in real life and, and virtual uh, in the work that you all do for doing digital movement building. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I think, you know, if I take a step back and I look at social media platforms, I think one of the things that makes GoFundMe unique is that you actually can take action on the things that you're seeing, yeah. in, whether it's in the virtual world or the real world. Um, and so we're effectively creating a bridge between those two things, right? Like I often think of us as amplifiers. We're amplifying the story uh, in a digital sense, but we're ultimately connecting it back to a, a problem that's happening in a physical world. Um, and so, you know, recently there was uh, a young kid, and if you haven't heard about this story, I encourage you to look it up because it'll, it'll make your day. Um, his name is Tani, and he's an eight-year-old chess player. Um, he's a Nigerian refugee, um, and uh, a local reporter took interest in his story because, come to find out, you know, his family uh, recently came to the U.S. as refugees, and they were uh, li living in a homeless shelter, and the young boy took an interest in chess, 
and his, one of his teachers basically invested in him. And in less than a year, he became a master chess player, so much so that he won um, the statewide competition in New York. So they wrote this fabulous story about him. Um, but nonetheless, like he, you know, he's still living in a homeless shelter and just missing basic things like being able to have a home-cooked meal. So the, the um, readers of New York Times wrote in and were like, how can we help this kid, you know? And lo and behold, someone started to go find me and the thing just kind of went viral and took off from there. Um, and they way exceeded the goal of what they were trying to raise. So from that point on, the family decided they were going to pay it forward and basically start a nonprofit to help other refugee families, right? So I just think it's a great example of like, it got a lot of reach in the digital world, but fundamentally, Mentally, the story was happening locally in the real world, and it was the local people that basically made that thing happen. It's definitely a story that can make our day. It's a really powerful story, so thank you for that. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in this room, and not just on this stage, so we'd love to open up for questions you all have for these amazing movement builders. One right here. There's a microphone coming. If you could just stand up and introduce yourself and your organization, that'd be great. Thank you. Hi, my name is Naomi. Um, I'm here with Twilio.org. So I have a question kind of going off of that um, in terms of access. So I've been using GoFundMe as a platform for one of my really dear friends who's a refugee from Zimbabwe. They live in South Africa. Um, her child has cerebral palsy. We've been struggling with this notion of access. So how, you know, she goes by and knocks on everyone's doors and say, hey, who has Western Union? How can we actually get this money to her? So um, the platform has been, you know, very successful. We've been able to raise a lot of money for him. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, we always have to figure out, okay, how can we actually get this money to her? I'm in San Francisco. They're in Cape Town, South Africa. So I don't know, maybe touching on kind of some of those issues, obviously trying to partner with nonprofits that are local has been one of my big goals. But um, maybe something that's more on like a personal level. A lot of times I know people use GoFundMe as personal platforms and just kind of local communities. And so, yeah, that's my question for access. Great, thank um, you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for doing that. That's an, an amazing story. Um, it is a great question. We're um, constantly figuring out um, the platform issue in terms of how do we get the flow of funds, especially in countries where we're not currently operating. So right now, uh, we operate in 19 different companies where people can raise money, but people can go donate from virtually all over the world. So we're looking to expand that footprint so that we can solve those issues of like, how do we get flow of funds in those countries where we're not currently operating. So in the interim, you probably do have to do some of these more hacky solutions, but it's definitely on our roadmap to address that. And I know that Aylan from Stripe is in the house, so there, maybe there's something there with our, <laughs> our payment processors from the, the corporate side as well. So uh, definitely a problem we're solving. What I also appreciate is just the pivot of like we're committed to continual improvement that like we're like, okay, keep trying, keep trying. Oh, this isn't working. Let's try to improve it. So I think hearing and learning about that is really helpful. Other questions? One, sorry, one there. You have the microphone and then one and then two. Hi, my name's Leah Hazard, and I'm uh, from Stanford University, a new program they're starting called The Social Exchange. Um, and my question is for GoFundMe. And I guess hearing about some of these stories, they're really inspiring, but it seems like you guys are filling a gap for a lot of the things that our government does not do well. So whether it's medical bills, school lunches, teachers buying their own resources, you guys are kind of plugging the holes 
for government's failings. And so I'm just curious about kind of your long-term theory of change mm -hmm. and whether you're doing any work in doing, going beyond just plugging the holes so that it isn't just one story, but it's operating at scale. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we talk about that a lot. Like we say transparently, like we are a safety net, right? Um, for many different issues, whether it's the failure of our healthcare system or whatnot. And in many ways, we wish we didn't exist because of that. Um, but, you know, we do because we are servicing a need and we are filling that gap. Um, I think the other thing we talk a lot about is uh, this disparity of the haves and the haves nots, right? So one of the things that we're working on is how do we close that disparity and figuring out, you know, we have access to this donor community that has the power to give. How do we grow that community and keep them engaged so that we can basically shore up that gap and make sure that more campaigns are successful and that we're spreading that wealth among the many instead of like focusing on just a few. Um, so those are some of the things I think that we're working on to basically help shore up the gap. But um, it is a big problem. We totally recognize that. Um, and I think that we're not, we're very transparent about the fact that like we wish we didn't have to exist because of those problems. But until those problems go away, like we are providing a safety net for those people. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, we've hit time, so um, I think we're all here all day, so apologies that we didn't get to more questions, but we are available. Uh, any last remark? Um, I think the last thing I would say is kind of what I said before is I think obviously technology plays a very powerful role in helping to scale the efforts that everyone in this room is interested in doing, but don't lose sight of the human side of this problem. Um, and figuring out how you keep your organization and your employees engaged on that piece of the business. Fantastic. I would just say if Brian Stevenson can be hopeful in light of some of the most terrible problems in our world, we all can. So instead of cynical, let's be hopeful. Great. Here's to lighting the match and sustaining it and moving from really outraged outcomes through this work. So thank you all. Take thank care. You. Thanks. Yeah.